0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of God, of the Lord. Speedy God. Thank you, Mary.
1: All right. Thank you, Mary. Sometimes the scripture reading is easy, and other times you got the Parasites and the Jebusites and the, and Mary just put a clinic on how to read scripture <laughs> publicly. So thank you, Mary Williams, for that. Okay, brought my iPad because I got something cool to say. So I thought I'd bring something cool to say it with. You ready for this? We have been trying to stay in step with the CDC and local health officials as we've navigated how to conduct ourselves as a congregation during this pandemic, especially with regard to things like face coverings and social distancing, and guidelines have evolved all the time. They've evolved a lot since the last time I addressed this in front of the congregation at length, which was nine weeks ago. And it feels like the world has changed in nine weeks. It's going to change in the next nine weeks. Uh, But this past week, two significant things happened which impact us. And they are these. First, the CDC said vaccinated people no longer need to wear face coverings indoors or outdoors or practice social distancing. Second, Nashville and Davidson County aligned with Williamson County by lifting face covering mandates in both counties. So what that means for us is this, from now on at Christ Presbyterian Church, Cool Springs, face coverings will be completely optional with one exception. And that one exception is if you are not vaccinated and you are serving in kids ministry. So that's the exception. So if you are not vaccinated and you're serving in kids ministry, that remains our most vulnerable cross-section of people. And we know that that some people are not ready or able to be vaccinated yet, or planning on being vaccinated. Uh, But this request is going to be based on the honor system, so we are not going to require proof of vaccination. But that's gonna be our new plan moving forward in keeping with CDC and local health officials uh, if you prefer to wear a face covering, go for it, please. And if you don't want to wear a face covering, please just be cool with people who are wearing face coverings. This, uh, one of the things I said nine weeks ago is that we are, I think that we're in the trickiest phase of this, where we have the most opportunity to, um, to lose unity with one another in navigating this last phase because Earlier, it felt like we were all in this together. We all had the same limitations, and we all had the same lack of information. And a lot has changed since then, and we've been able to. Many of us have been able to uh, to to take some steps in order to be uh, in order to have some of these restrictions lifted. So let's continue to love one another well. Uh, So if you prefer to wear a face covering, by all means, please do. Uh, But they are optional with the exception of vaccinated people serving in kids' ministry. You as a congregation, I have to tell you, have done an amazing job of walking through this thing together. Uh, And it's, I mean, I say it kind of selfishly as a pastor because this could have been a disaster for me uh, (laughs) to to navigate a congregation that was uncooperative and unwilling to, to be to be gracious with one another through this. And that's just not been my experience at all. So thank you uh, for that. It's been a great way to model love for one another. And so as we remember, as we take these next steps together, let's just continue to be kind to one another and know that moving forward, face coverings are optional with that one exception. Also, the other thing I wanna mention is because social distancing is now also optional for vaccinated people, what I think we're going to do is start arranging the middle section of chairs without uh, the social distancing and we'll continue to do social distance seating on the wings. Uh, Feels like we're a small enough room where it won't feel like we've got an ostracized um, outer rim, uh, but we'll all be in here. But but just as you're selecting seats uh, moving forward, just when you see, it'll, it'll look a little bit different. Um, I, I can't. I'm going to be confused when I, when I see it next week. When I when we set up the chairs and I'm like, that can't be right. <laughs> but it'll be like it's always been. Um, anyway, so I'm excited to give that announcement. All right, moving forward, the burning bush. What a passage! What a passage that we get to study today. It's kind of a. Uh, it's on the short list, I think, of people who know Bible stories. This is one. Uh, that people, people know. Uh, they know God appearing in the burning bush. It, it's, it's, it's on fire, but it's not consumed. Um, so let's get into this. There is a, um, there's a scene in a little movie that Disney put out a long time ago about a lion. Uh, it's called The Lion King. And I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it, but it, it's, uh, it's pretty good. Um, and there's this young lion named Simba. And when Simba is young, he finds himself in the boneyard and this pack of hyenas being, begins to close in on him. You remember this scene? And he kind of scooches himself up and he roars and it comes out like this feeble little meow, this little, little kind of squeal almost. And the hyenas just look at him and they laugh. And they keep getting closer and closer and they're growling. And he goes to growl again. He digs deep and he roars. But this time, it's this... Remember, it's this deep, low, loud, ferocious roar and the hyenas are terrified. You remember that scene? What happened is suddenly the great Mufasa appears in all his ferocity behind Simba and he roars, and he roars again and he's telling the predators and he gets in, he gets in the hyenas' faces and he tells them never to come near his son again. And it's a powerful movie because that scene begins with Simba trying to be fierce and brave, trying to be strong on his own, only to find out that he's really just no match for the hyenas. They laugh at him. But when Mufasa shows up, it makes the scene, what what makes the scene is we don't just see who Mufasa is, but we see who Simba is too, and that is he is Mufasa's son. And so in today's passage, God is, uh, Moses is asking God two questions. There are two questions that, that really I want to build the framework of this message around. Uh, and they're questions that Moses puts to God. The questions are, who am I and who are you? And it's vital that we get the order of those questions correct. I want to address an elephant in the room, and that's that there's music playing right over there. And that's because we survive in a hotel for our church and kids ministry is happening now on the other side of that air wall. As you know, I'm cool with it uh, and we're gonna roll. Um, But I also wanted to acknowledge it because it's happening, it's going down right now. Okay, listen, who am I, who are you? Those are the questions Moses asks God. It is, if you're a, a young person, Right now, If you're a person who, is, who, who would consider yourself to be on the front end of exploring questions about God, I want you to listen to me, okay? I want you to listen to me. If you're somebody who's been walking with the Lord, and by, by young, I mean young in faith. So some of you may be 14 years old that I'm talking to. Some of you may be 57 years old, but you're asking a new set of questions. Some of you may be people who would say, I've been asking questions about faith my whole life. Until in recent years, I haven't been asking them as intently. This is really important, what I'm about to say. In fact, I would say it's vital. Because you're going to do one of the two things. And that's this. It is vital that we get the order right of those two questions. Who am I and who are you when it comes to God? Because if I start with the question, who am I? I'm gonna fill that up with all kinds of things. I'm going to put together an identity and based on the identity that I assemble for myself, then I'm going to start to say who I think God must then be. But in scripture, it's, it, what scripture models for us is no, the order of these questions is who is God first, and we base the answer of who am I based on the based on who he is. Scripture says you always have to start with who is God first, and we see that here. Just as Simba on his own was really no match for the perilous world that he was in, we have to understand that we are directly tied, and our identity is directly born out of who God is. Who he is determines who we are. Because we're people made in his image. And so let's walk through the passage and unpack it. Moses is a shepherd here in Midian. Uh, Exodus gives us this, this um, uh, nice, clean little breakdown of, of the arc of Moses' life that he spends 40 years in the palace of Pharaoh. He spends 40 years as a shepherd in Midian, and then he spends 40 years wandering in the wilderness with the people of God. That's kind of the arc of of Exodus. And here he's in that 40 years where he is a shepherd with the Midianites. That's what the Midianites were. They were shepherds. And so he'd fallen in with this new family, and he's working his father-in-law's herds. And his flock is wandering, and they come to Mount Horeb, which the text describes as Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Now you may wonder why that, why does he do that? Well, what is Mount Horeb? It's Sinai, it's Mount Sinai. And Moses is the one writing this book, right? And so he's telling us, Mount Horeb is what we called it. It's also gonna come up later, under a bit of a different name, but this is where the burning bush incident happens. It happens out in Mount Horeb. What's fascinating about this, and what I love about it, is Moses is not there Because he's looking for God. He's just doing his job. He's going about his life. And this is something beautiful about how God works. God meets us sometimes when we're not looking for him. In fact, if I were to take 45 minutes and make this an open mic and say, anybody in the room who has a story of God meeting you when you were not looking for him, come up. I would have to cut that short after 45 minutes with a long line of people because it's how God works. It's how he might be working on you right now. God meets people when we're not looking for him. And he appears to Moses in this flame. It's something that is a theme in the book of Exodus. God would do this a number of times throughout. He would appear as this pillar of fire. Uh, He would be a flame on Mount Sinai. Uh, And so Moses sees this thing. He sees a bush that is burning, but isn't consumed. We've all had this experience where we've seen something that's been just a little off, and we may not automatically know what it is that's off, but we know something's off, and there's kind of this uncanny feeling, and you have to go investigate because something just seems not quite right. And that's what Moses does. He goes over to investigate, and from the burning bush, God calls his name. God uses Moses' name it's such a simple profound truth about the god of the bible who he is that helps shape our understanding of who we are and it's and it's this god knows you personally he knows you personally you you may think i don't I, I, how could he know him? how could he know me personally i've never talked to him ah You're putting your own understanding of who you are before your understanding of who God is. What the Bible tells us is we're made in the image of God. He knows us. He loves us. Uh, Psalm 139 tells us that before one of our days came to pass, He knew them full well. He knows the number of hairs on our heads, He knows the number of our days on this earth. God knows Moses, He knows him, and He calls to him You're known. Not only are you known, but you're known by God. And to be known by God is to be loved by God. That's the only way that works. And so what does God tell him to do? Ah, here's another place where it's important to get the order right. Who's God? Who am I? Because Moses starts to go near and God says, stop. Don't come any closer. Stay where you are. Take off your shoes, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. What do we see here? We see two things. We see, one, he uses Moses' name, that God is a personal, intimate God, that he's invested on us in an intimate, personal level, and at the same time, he is also utterly holy. He's utterly holy. The intimacy bids us come, and the holiness says, but don't approach unless... You've been made holy. And so, who God is impacts who Moses is. He's a shepherd going about his business when he walks up into this scene, but now he's a man with his shoes off of his feet and he's bowing down. He takes off his shoes as God identifies himself. And who does he identify himself as? He identifies himself as the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Commentator Alan Cole writes this, Moses brings no new or unknown God to his people, but a fuller revelation of the one that they have known. God is an established being. And notice, the God that Moses encounters is made of the kind of stuff where when he tells Moses to take off his shoes, Moses doesn't argue Moses knows it's the right thing to do. He he hides his he wants to hide his face in fear because of the holiness that he's encountered. He didn't dare behold his glory. And friends, this is a picture of how we know God, and it's this: we know God in part. We know God in part. If we were to know Him in full, His glory would undo us. Follow me here, Paul Simon saying these words, every generation throws its heroes up the pop charts. I love that line. I love that line because we do this with ideas too. Every generation throws its ideas up the pop charts. Every generation throws its morality up the pop charts. Every generation throws its truth up the pop charts. We embrace the ideas of our cultural moment, the ideas that our cultural moment demands that we embrace, by the way. And then, we apply the most uncharitable labels that we can to those who don't embrace the demands of our cultural moment. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time right now with historically held tenets of Orthodox Christianity. If you try to hold on to the teachings of Scripture, many of which are very unpopular, people will say things about you like you're toxic and you're hateful And you're bigoted, and you're ignorant, and you're living in the dark ages, even abusive. Here is why, I guess the gloves are off this morning. Here is why biblical literacy is so important. And we stress this as a key value here at Christ Presbyterian Church, right, that people who are part of this church would be people who spend time with Jesus in Scripture daily. Why? Because you need to know what it says about God. We need to know what it says about God. Many of the arguments against long-held historic Christian beliefs are cultural arguments, not biblical arguments. And ironically, follow me on this, because I just think this is fascinating. Because you agree, right, you would agree that our culture demands certain things of us right now. You must believe this. If you believe this other thing, you're, you're living in the dark ages, you have your head in the sand, you're a fool, right? Okay, follow the logic here. People critique biblical truth as dated cultural trends from which we've evolved not recognizing that they're using present-day cultural trends as the primary authority to dismiss the past. You see the problem with that? The problem with that is it never ends because this moment will become the outdated past. So we can't... Just go through life bending our knee to what our culture is demanding in the moment. We have to be anchored in something that's true. The only word that should precede truth is the definite article, the. Not my truth, not a truth, the truth. There has to be such a thing. Otherwise, we're just making it up generationally as we go in the dark. We're we're, we're Simba roaring with nothing behind us. If we aren't anchored in scripture, we will and do live out what we read in the book of judges, and that's everybody does what seems right in their own eyes at the time. The indictment there about judges, by the way, is that it's nothing new. It was a cycle people have been in since the fall of man, is that we do what we think feels right. But on what basis do we say it's right? We do this even with God. We make God into someone who agrees with us on almost every issue, right? So if the God that you believe in agrees with you on most everything, maybe you've made him in your image. See what we're doing? Who am I? That's first. Who is God? It flows out of who I am. We can't do it that way. One place we see this happening a lot right now has to do with questions of morality. Does God care what we do with our bodies? Does God care how we regard other people, how we regard, regard their bodies? It can be easy to turn God into a morally progressive, easygoing guy who just wants you to be happy in whatever way that you can. By the way, when we, when we take that position, we're, we're assuming a lot of definition. We're assuming what a definition of happiness is, right? We're assuming that God wants me to be happy. I think this is what's going to make me happy, so I'm going to go after that, only to find out that that is a well-worn path to misery, and it has been throughout human history. But what does Scripture show us? As we see in today's passage and countless others, Scripture shows us that when people encounter God, like Moses did, like Abraham, like Isaiah, what do they do? they're undone they tremble in his presence in fear of his holiness a reverent fear they bow before him and they repent they repent without being able to articulate everything they have to repent of they just repent because they know they're in the presence of holiness they desire to draw near at the same time they repent they bow in fear and they want to get close They want to be made pure. They never treat God as a buddy. They never treat God as somebody who is indifferent to holiness. We see through a glass darkly. But the nearer we get to God, the greater reverence we will develop for his holiness. And it will will still us. The humility will come over us. We will feel it when it comes to even things like our positions that we hold. We will hold them with an open hand, saying, Lord, at any moment, your holiness trumps what I think I understand. And so, by way of application, before we move on, I'm just imploring you. (laughs) I'm imploring you, let your positions and your morals and your guiding life principles be informed by the truth of Scripture, And if you want that to be the case for your own life, you have to read it. You have to read scripture. You have to be a people, you have a person of the book. But it's a good book. I love it. It's a good book. And if you feel like I read it and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, continue to be part of a church because I get paid to read it too and then tell you what it says. So there's that, that's going for you, that's, that's good. Okay, so what's God's message to Moses? Moving on. God's message to Moses is really amazing because he says three things to him. He says that he sees what's happening, he hears the cries, he knows what's going on in their hearts. So if you're going through something and you wonder, where is God? Does he see? Does he care? The God of the Bible does these things. He sees, he hears, he knows. He's at work. And not only is he at work, but he's at work with full knowledge of what you're walking through. What does he see? What does he hear? What does he know? Their affliction. He sees their affliction. He hears their cries of misery. He knows their suffering. Isaiah speaks of our Savior as a suffering servant, and we see that here. He doesn't just see the situation of his people in Egypt. He sees it as misery. He sees it as affliction. He sees it as suffering, and he understands the weight of it. And not only that, he intends to deliver them from it, He intends to stand behind them and roar. And he doesn't just deliver them from misery, but he delivers them unto good, good things. Sometimes our prayers can be so nearsighted. I'm suffering and I'm struggling with this thing. Deliver me from this thing. But God's heart and his posture toward us is, take it a step further. Deliver me unto peace. Deliver me unto joy. Deliver me unto something good. Can you see why understanding the holiness of God matters? Because when you read passages like this, we understand there's nothing, nothing ambivalent or weak or passive or small about what God says to Moses. He sees the evil for what it is. And he calls it that. And he declares his plan to do something. And it's not something that a weak and disinterested God would be able to do. Because what's his plan? His plan is to overthrow the most powerful nation in the world. And there's no doubt from where God's sitting that this is what's going to happen. And so he gives Moses a mission. It's one of the preeminent texts in Scripture when it comes to knowing specifically who God is. And it's really bound up in his mission for Moses. In fact, one might say that God's mission for Moses is one of the most basic things we can know about the God of the Bible, and that is that he is a rescuer, he rescues, he redeems. But here we see in this story, and we're gonna see it time and time again in this series on the life of Moses, is that sometimes his rescue doesn't feel like rescue. And it's not how the people would have necessarily drawn it up. Because here he tells Moses "What what I want you to do is I want you to go back to Egypt. We just talked last week about why that's not a good idea. Right, because he was just there living as a prince in Pharaoh's palace. He killed an Egyptian slave master. Pharaoh found out about it, now wants him dead. He went to the Hebrew people hoping he would find refuge there. They wanted nothing to do with him because where's he been? And so now he's over in Midian and the Lord is saying, all right, I need you to go back. You're going to go back. Another principle. These are lots of, lots of principles in here. Um, and it's this. Often God calls us to do hard things my kids will tell you that I say this all the time do hard things do hard things it's good to do hard things and it's not a great way to live to never do hard things because it means we're choosing a path that's, that's not really going to go anywhere but notice how Moses works through God's call before Moses asks who are you he asks the question who am I who am I that you would send me Do You ever ask that question, who am I? Is your identity something that you wrestle with? Is your identity something that you're in the process of making up, that you feel like it's a blank slate, there's really nothing there, so I guess it's up to me to assemble what my identity is, to put it together? Is it going to be something you make up? Is it going to be your achievements? This may be one of your biggest insecurities right now, that you just aren't sure who you are. You're not sure who you are in the world. Listen, you are in really good company. At any given moment, every person in this room is a little unclear in who we are in this world. Some of us profoundly unclear. Some of us a little less so. But we wonder, we wonder. And it may be one of your biggest insecurities that you aren't sure who you really are. And if that is you, here's what you probably do. And if you're unsure, just ask people close to you who see your life and they can they can say, yeah, you do that. And it's, it's this. You probably try to express your individuality hard. You try to do that to establish your identity. I'm this. Look at this. I'm going to establish it so that you can see it. Here's what scripture teaches. You don't have to do that. And the reason you don't have to do that is you are not... Adrift. You're not adrift. You are not adrift in this world. Scripture teaches, that from the be- teaches from the beginning that our identities are connected to God at the deepest level. We are his image bearers. We are fully known. We are fully loved. That's why we need the book. Who is God, Moses eventually asks. That's the question. That's the real question. What God tells Moses to do is really unthinkable. He says, lead the Hebrews out of their slavery in Egypt. Unravel the great and mighty nation of Egypt. Who is this God that does this? Who is this God who sends and rescues and delivers and redeems? Ah, here we come at last to this great moment in scripture. Who are you? And what we find is he has a name. He has a name. He speaks his name to Moses. Moses says, when I go to my people and I tell them that you've sent me to lead them out, what should I say if they ask who you are? And the Lord said, I am who I am. Now that may sound weird to us, kind of as an english that's a name is that a name it's where we get the name yahweh it's it's kind of an adaptation of what he says here of this i am jesus uses this i am several times in the gospel of john to make these divine declarations about himself i am the way the truth and the life i am the good shepherd These are the words that he uses where he's intentionally connecting himself to the divine name. The Lord says, I am who I am. And then he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Say this to them, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob sent me. That's my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations And here's where we get that name, Yahweh, I Am. It's the name with a past and a present and a future. It's an ongoing, eternal, from the furthest reaches of history and before to eternity and beyond, I Am. I was talking with my good friend, Billy Servany, who's sitting right over there uh, this week, about this name that God uses for himself And he was telling me that the name Satan in scripture always appears with a definite article. It's actually the Satan, the deceiver, the the, the usurper, the undoer, uh, the destroyer. Satan doesn't have a name. He has a title. But God has a name. God has a name. And the name I am doesn't just mean that he exists. It means that he actively exists. I'm happening is another way of saying it. There are no others like him. He is the one who is, exclusively. And he's the same God who called Abraham when he was living out there. He's the same God who called Isaac. He's the same God who called Jacob when Abraham was in the land of Ur, by the way, in case you thought I was, just didn't know. I actually didn't know. I had to stop and think about it. Let my subconscious process What I knew about the Bible, which is important to read. He's inexhaustible. He's in this for the long haul, and he has a name. He's a personal God. He's not some spirit doling out luck, he's not an energy field. He has a name. And did you catch it? He knew Moses' name too. It means this, we have a personal God who knows us personally. There's no other scenario. God has a name and he knows your name. The only way to know him is to know him personally. Our personal God meets us as distinct individuals with all of the things going on. He knows us and by his grace, we can know him too. And one of the great gifts he's given us to be able to know him is what? It's his word. So this lion who roared behind Simba, he wasn't just any lion. He was Mufasa. He was the king of the pride lands of Africa. And the hyenas bowed not just to any old lion, but they bowed to the king. But the God who calls us, the God who sends us, the God who redeems us, the God who rescues us is greater still because he's the king of the universe. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And he sees you. He sees you. He knows your name. And he knows your secrets. And he knows your past. And he knows your fears. And he knows your hopes. And he knows your weariness. And when he sent Moses to Egypt, it was to rescue the Hebrew people from their slavery to Pharaoh. Yeah. But it was more than that. It was also in part to rescue you and me. Why? Because you are no less known than Moses was. Get your mind around that. You are no less known to God than Moses was. And he says, thus am I to be remembered as that. So take courage in that. You're known and you're loved personally. By the God who made the heavens and the earth, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for passages like this that we come to in a season that's it's different than you leading slaves out of Egypt in its scale, but but a similarity that we may feel is is even a a uh, the. Being at the, at the beginning of, a, of an exodus from, from a, a, a difficult stretch uh, globally of, of navigating a pandemic where we feel the weariness and the heaviness in our hearts of, of all of the things that we've needed to do and that we've chosen to do and that we've acquiesced to do out of respect for other people, even though we didn't feel we needed to do it for ourselves. All of those things, Lord, we're weary. We're weary. And one of the things that's been so hard to manage over the last year or so has been connection to one another and community. And so we felt lonely and we felt a little adrift and we've wondered who we are and we've had this missing piece, this piece that's so important for us, this this piece of being in proximity to others, of being relational beings. And when Moses went into Midian For those 40 years after 40 years as a prince in Pharaoh's court, he must have felt adrift too. But you remind us through your word that we're not adrift, we're never adrift, that you know where we are, you know who we are, you know what we need, and most importantly, you know exactly who you are, and you don't change. And so, Lord, as we feel our way around through this life, sometimes in seasons where we're feeling around in the dark. Would you be for us what you were for Moses, and that is a light that burns and does not extinguish? And would you draw us ever near? And as you do, awaken in us a reverence and an awe of your holiness and also a longing in our heart reminding us of the intimacy with which you know us. You know our names and you give us yours.